Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Uh, my name is Bill Clark. I'm a member of the center here uh, and also direct the Sustainability Science Program, um, uh, which also lives within the center. It's my pleasure to introduce our uh, speaker for today, uh, Liliana Avinova. Uh, Liliana is a, uh, a, a long-term friend of Harvard. Um, uh, she got her PhD here in 2001 uh, in government, uh, was back here uh, a decade later um, as a Ruth Holder Fellow within the Center for Business and Government. Um, she is now uh, a professor at the Professor for International Relations at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, uh, which is a spectacular place that is, uh, I, I, to me, it, is, it feels like the Kennedy School in the sense that no one on the outside actually seems to have the faintest comprehension for what it actually does. Um, but but it, it trains students. Uh, it's running some really fascinating new interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary training programs. Uh, it's been accumulating an amazing faculty over the last several years, uh, much of it thanks to Liliana, who is uh, rising up alarmingly rapidly into administrative positions, which we hope does not damage her um, uh, production of books and the like. Um, uh, she uh, uh, agreed to come here uh, just because we would always like to have her, but also because she has just uh, published I think there is a raffle going on in the front of the room for uh, with his glorious book, uh, Governance Entrepreneurs, um, which I won't say more about because much of the talk is dealing on this. Um, uh, but I think uh, several of us saw it in the works as it was growing up, and just a, a spectacularly um, helpful original cut uh, at how the nature of transnational uh, governance is changing. Uh, how different actors are playing different both separate and joint roles in it and so on. So we're delighted to have her here to talk about this and with that I will turn it over to Lily. Uh, I assume you will go by normal Harvard rules which is uh, basically unless it is a crisis in your life don't interrupt until she's done <laughs> but that she will finish up in plenty of time that there will be some questions. So, okay. Great. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill, for the very kind introduction. Thank you very much to John and to the entire Center on Business and Government for the invitation. It is really always an honor, but also a pleasure to be at your home base uh, and to see both some of your students, collaborators, and mentors at the same time. Uh, so it is really a treat for me to talk about my most recent book, um, Anna. Uh, about the story of that book, if you wish a little bit. Every book starts a little bit with a wandering, with a story. And um, I do a lot of work on global environmental issues and international organizations. And in 2003, fresh, almost fresh out of grad schools, uh, the UN adopted global partnerships as an official outcome of the Sustainable Development Summit. Um, and the reason they adopted them then was that nothing else was happening. Uh, and so some of the people within the UN scrambled quickly and launched this platform and people signed on to partnerships. 
And um, 10 years later, I mean, if 10% of those partnerships even survived, I would be surprised. A lot of these partnerships kind of, but at the same time, there was a parallel trend of part public-private partnerships becoming a very important feature of governance in fields such as global health, fields such as human rights. Um, and that really started me wondering, um, how can we explain institutional change? I would claim in this talk that our field, international relations theory until recently, has not be pre been preoccupied with change. They have been more preoccupied with institutional stability. Um, and how can we make sense of glo global partnerships as a form of governance in the multilateral system? So hence this talk is about how partnerships have changed multilateral governance. Um, just uh, as an introduction, I adopt a very simple definition of public-private partnerships. It's important for people who study partnerships because there are many definitions, but here it's basically collaboration between private in the sense of non-state actors and public actors ranging from international institutions, governments, mayors, if you wish, or public actors. But key for me is that this collaboration needs to have a specific public purpose. Not any partnership is the kind of partnerships I'm talking about. And the real puzzle that uh, several kinds of puzzles started me thinking about the need to write a bigger book and a comparative perspective on this phenomena. And, and, and first of all, I would argue partnerships introduce a qualitative change in the international system. If you look on the left, multilateral institutions have a relatively clear mandate delegated by states to serve states. They are relative hierarchies. They have spheres of influence and their mandates are to be inclusive. Partnerships are very often ad hoc, decentralized. They uh, basically melt public purpose and private purpose. Uh, they involve literally no or very soft legalization, a lot of flexibility, and initially a lot of self-selection. Uh, so that has made partnerships also somewhat contentious, and some of these features have enabled collective action, but at the same time, they introduce this very new form within a system that is traditionally assumed to be relatively bureaucratic and inert. And partnerships also, thanks to the data we collected, uh, appear to be a quantitative change uh, in global governance as well. There are some institutions such as the ILO, uh, the CGIRR, the International Red Cross that have this hybrid uh, authority uh, governance structure, but clearly this is a recent phenomenon across multilateral <coughs> institutions to collaborate in this way. Another complicating factor in my life over the last four years when working on this book has been these partnerships are very diverse. You have one model here, which is the Global Fund uh, for HIV, TB, and Malaria. It has a very specific governance model. It's raising money and it's providing aid for development and health in return for results. And this is all from their website. This is another model of partnership. It's very local. The Global Fund is a billion-dollar partnership. This is a $50,000 partnership. UNDP started deliberately these kinds of partnerships out of the uh, global environmental facility to make sustainability a matter of local action. So this kind of partnership intends to engage local communities in building their own sustainability livelihoods around the rights of women, around better cooking facilities, and the use of solar power. So how can we make sense of this landscape? And to make things even more interesting, there is a, 
there is a controversy about partnerships. There's the partnership enthusiasts who point out the new collective action, new leveraging of resources and expertise. And there is also, and often, warranted skepticism about what does this collaboration between the private and the public sphere means. Uh, is it introducing a new corporate influence uh, in the international system, not only from companies, but from large NGOs, foundations? Do we see the retreat of the state, whereby states are abdicating responsibilities uh, for governance? Uh, is this targeted approach, especially in health, this is a big debate, crowding out broader policy objectives, health system strengthening, things like that. Uh, do PPP subvert the public service of IELTS? And I wanted to mention that one of the uh, most popular talks that I gave in Geneva was one organized by Suri Moon, and it was titled Public-Private Partnerships, What Implications for the WHO? Everybody wanted to, to, to hear uh, about the tension. So how, how do I uh, attempt to contribute uh, to this kind of puzzle world? And so the, the main research questions basically is how can we explain substantial institutional change in a system that is perceived to be relatively stuck? Um, and of course, uh, I'm trained here, so I can already tell you that existing theories do not that, do not do that very well. Uh, they either focus on the need for a major bargain between states, to move the institutional equilibrium uh, forward. Uh, that can happen in <coughs> uh, points such as the creation of the UN or dissatisfaction with current institutions. Or others uh, in the constructivist realm has focused on autonom autonomous bureaucratic action, but more often than not, this bureaucratic action produces extension of existing things rather than innovation. And so my argument is, that while the current literature has focused on this narrow uh, depiction of the multilateral system, states delegate authority to IOs who work basically for states, um, I'm uh, arguing that a change, political change, can happen uh, through coalitions between states and international organizations, uh, rather than pitting them one versus the other. But we can understand this kind of change if we conceive the multilateral system embedded in a much more dynamic environment, in a globalized environment, where these actors often are under pressure from the private sector, from NGOs, from local publics, from legislatures, and the states are not always fast enough to respond to these pressures. So the argument here is that when international organizations face existential pressures on the basis of legitimacy, on the basis of resources, uh, on the basis of beliefs, uh, they're likely to become entrepreneurial actors. This is rare, uh, but it is an important mechanism of institutional change, especially in our days. And we wouldn't understand systems of governance now in health, clean energy, um, private military companies if we don't take into account this kind of dynamics. I have four hypotheses under what conditions the turbulence is likely to be sufficient to push governance entrepreneurs uh, to experiment with new institutional solutions. I'm not going to go over them. I can always discuss them in the Q&A. But the key is that the theory is uh, one of dynamic and quasi-endogenous institutional change. It's quasi-endogenous because the institutional capital of the multilateral system enables these coalitions, 
but at the same time it's, it's dynamic because it critically depends on entrepreneurship, on, on political entrepreneurs that are going to stick their heads out and take risks, which is not very common for bureaucrats or governments. Um, but under these conditions of turbulence, what they do is they identify potential solutions and they uh, identify a potential coalitions of the willing to support the, those solutions. And also international organizations have this important interest in centrality in governance systems. They have connections to states, especially developing states. They have connections to member states uh, and donor countries, but they also are now increasingly attractive interlocutor for NGOs and for companies that seek to advance their purposes, their corporate social responsibility through uh, uh, international organizations. So my argument is that this kind of institutional change, whether it's partnerships or other initiatives, takes a cycle of institutional change. First, we try to put through the back door an experiment, a new agreement on business and human rights, about which I'm going to be talking in a bit. Um, and once you manage to get that passed, uh, this agreement uh, might um, uh, survive or not, like the WSSG partnership didn't survive, but climate finance initiatives survived in the World Bank. But the in order to survive and to diffuse these experimental institutions need to enlarge their political support among member states and their legitimacy. And only then, a lot of these experimental institutions become adopted, exposed as as part of the institutional infrastructure of the multilateral system. So in this sense, it's a dynamic institutional change because it really depends on the evolution of these stages. And there are a range of observable indication of that theory which suggests that the process of change matters and the skill of the entrepreneurs matters. Uh, and also, uh, there are likely to be sometimes important spillover effects that lead to new intergovernmental collaboration. I have seen that in health, I have seen that in mercury, I have seen that in business and human rights and also climate finance. So how did we go about figuring out whether all of that has anything to do with the real world? Uh, there are these wonderful institutions called National Science Foundations, um, which allowed us, together with my PhD students, to build maybe the, the first partnership database of global public-private partnerships in uh, the global, in global governance, uh, which we are going to soon make public and people can use it for their purposes. Um, a lot of other uh, friends and institutions supported this research. Uh, the Sustainability Science Program, when I was a fellow, I started thinking about these things and putting them together as well as uh, uh, many of my uh, PhD students and the Center of International Environmental Studies. Um, so <coughs> this uh, partnership database exists. Uh, it looks at the portfolio of five institutions of global public-private partnerships, the World Bank, WHO, UNICEF, UNEP, and the UN Secretariat. And I will be happy in the Q&A to talk more about the data and to give more examples. But I just wanted to illustrate here with a, a case which probably many of you know, have heard about. So, so I'm going to give you the institutional story, the theory of that case. It is basically how business and human rights became a sphere 
of global <laughs> regulation and global governance and global action, something about this, which the center is about. And um, uh, of course, one of the main governance entrepreneurs in that sphere of governance was the Secretary General Kofi Annan, and this is mean we could uh, it's a big loss that uh, he recently passed away, but he has active as a pro-entrepreneur in global governance, and this is the famous quote from uh, the meeting where he launched the Global Compact on Business, Human Rights, and Other Sustainability Principles. I propose to you the business leaders gathered here in Davos and with the United Nations initiate the compact. This is unheard of in UN history, that the Secretary General invites business to collaborate directly um, with the UN not in the General Assembly, but at Davos, and I'll come back to that. What the Kofi Annan and the UN in general were facing was a huge organizational turbulence. First of all, the, U the US did not appropriate at that time the funding for the UN, so they were short on budget. There was constant political pressure um, for their relevance, uh, for the need of reform, and what, according to my interviews, Kofi was noticing, gee, while official development assistance is stagnating, FDI is skyrocketing. Uh, so his idea was to, uh, for the UN to remain relevant, it needs to collaborate with these new powerful actors, and moreover, it needs to bring the value of the UN uh, to that globalized system. So how do internal entrepreneurs do that. I mean, they're not paid to, to change things in this radical way. So they build a team of other entrepreneurs. So uh, a very important and leading member of that team was old Professor John Rangi. So he's not here today. I can talk about him freely. <laughs> uh, so Professor John Nagy was, uh, a new position was uh, created. That is a new, like, that illustrates the initiative of these governance entrepreneurs to assist the uh, Secretary General uh, to launch special programs for greater collaboration with the private sector and uh, among UN agencies to achieve UN goals. Now, already Kofi was interpreting his mandate as to what he can do and who he can appoint. So he have, uh, created this new office. Um, and uh, one of the main initiatives of, the, of uh, John Draghi's office was to launch the Global Compact, uh, as well as the NDGs, uh, and basically a range of initiatives to think how UN norms can be interpreted, how they can be translated to be an understandable to the business sectors and large transnational actors. Uh, so that group of people uh, got engaged in careful interpretation of mandates, consultations. The Office of the High Commission of Human Rights wrote a series of papers that established under what conditions and how you can link human rights norms that are in the UN Charter and uh, then apply them to business. And so when uh, the Global Compact was launched in that famous Davos speech. I did text analysis of, Davos, of the Davos speech very carefully several times, looking at both draft and the actual speech. And it was very carefully crafted by these entrepreneurs to say, well, to the member states, they were saying, we're not doing anything new. This is all on the books. This is the Human Rights Charter. We're just inviting the private sector to honor the charter and to see us, the UN, as relevant for globalization, as relevant for sustainability. 
and 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 uh, and also at the same time, or a little before that, Ted Turner gave a billion dollar gift to the UN to compensate for the US arrears. And what Kofi Annan and Ted Turner did with that, instead of putting it directly on programming, they created a separate platform, the United Nations Foundation, which then encouraged as another tool partnerships between the private sector, the NGOs, and UN organizations. So these entrepreneurs work on multiple fronts. Um, of course, immediately, this initiative was questioned from within the bureaucracy, including Deputy Secretary General, who were very much against it. They, they saw, the critics saw it as an existential threat to the United Nations, because the identity of the United Nations is an intergovernmental body. Uh, and as an intergovernmental body, all of, uh, all of a sudden it opens the door to direct collaboration with non-state actors. Um, others saw it as endorsement of market-driven globalization, um, and others critiqued the global compact in particular as being uh, too soft, voluntary, open-ended, uh, and not much accountability as to whether these companies really stick to these 10 principles to which they sign on to. Um, and uh, there is a folk story that tells us that uh, a coalition of the G77 and China went to Kofi Annan two days after the Davos speech um, and asked him, Mr. Secretary General, who authorized you to launch the Global Compact? A reasonable question from principles. And Kofi responded, I don't think I need permission to implement the Human Rights Charter, which illustrates my point of entrepreneurs being able to interpret their mandate and to situate uh, the, the new experimental institutions within their mandate. And, and the states that supported them, I listed them on the previous page, they were considering themselves friends of the global compact, not your traditional intergovernmentalism. And so how this initiative survived? Uh, it survived thanks to three strategies. Uh, one, and you can see that there was a political scientist in uh, in the experimentation group. <laughs> uh, they created local global compact uh, chapters uh, in developing countries and in all major economies. So basically, these chapters created domestic demand from businesses for their governments to support the global compact because these businesses uh, in China, India, uh, South Africa, Russia, so it is advantageous to them to be joining the corporate social responsibility movement at this high level that is kind of sanctioned by the UN. Um, and that was politically very important. Also, membership was increasing. But what the compact had to do critically is to start delisting companies who do not comply with the minimal reporting requirements. And I have to say, the requirements are really minimal. Out of 10 principles, companies have to report on two of them and how they are advancing them. And even with those minimal requirements, some companies were not reporting. So for the legitimacy and the credibility of the compact, the listing had to take place. Some greater accountability had to be put in. Um, and uh, the, and the, I had the most fun with this way of institutionalizing business and human rights work within the UN. I did a lot of archival work. I printed up all the General Assembly resolutions. I went to the beach <coughs> and read them. You can't read them in the office. <laughs> <laughs> and after the third resolution or fourth resolution, I said, wait a minute, I read that already. I looked, it's the same resolution, only has a different number. 
And so what I realized they were doing is they started this talking in the General <coughs> Assembly, reaffirming the need over and over again every two years for this collaboration and giving some illustrative examples of how partnerships advance to end goals. So there was the socialization of the General Assembly into the concept of public-private partnerships as the way to do uh, business. And then finally, in 2008, the UN recognized the Global Compact as a legitimate part of what, how the UN does business. But by that time, the entrepreneurs of the Global Compact were themselves dissatisfied with the Global Compact. Uh, so that was essentially the stepping stone to the Protect, Respect, and Remedy Framework on Business and Human Rights, where Hoffi Nan appointed John Raggi as a special representative on business and human rights. And this is one example of how this experimental institution as a public-private partnerships within the framework of the UN, or barely, uh, really sets a new focal point for a new political and uh, institutional change outside even the partnership model. So what this framework did is uh, it involved a lot of consultations with the same networks that were already established as part of the Global Compact, and it resulted in something that is a soft law under the authority of the Council on Human Rights. In other words, this is now an intergovernmental framework on business and human rights. This is not a public-private partnerships, but my argument is the book is that this intergovernmental framework would not have been possible. It was unanimously approved, both in 2008 and then with the guiding principle on how to implement it in 2011, without this degree of socialization and really understanding what the responsibilities of business could be with respect to uh, uh, human rights. And again, the text is very interesting. Uh, it affirms that they're not doing anything else. Thank you very much for all member states that are wondering. It is still the Human Rights Charter and all documents, um, but it extends that charter to corporate responsibility and access to judicial and non-judicial remedy, which certainly was not there in the Global Compact. See, it's a really another level of soft, a softly legalized uh, uh, framework, and I enjoyed this phrase very much because this is International Relations Regime Theory 101, to which Raghi and others have contributed, and it's right there, to create authoritative focal point around which actors' expectations could converge. In other words, what I'm arguing is that we have seen a substantial institutional change about how the world, governments, and business talks about and acts about business and human rights. Now, governments such as France and Switzerland are adopting domestic regulations to enforce that soft law framework, and other countries would follow. Um, and this was only possible through this incremental cycle of institutional change led by uh, governance entrepreneurs. Um, and I want to argue that this kind of dynamics have uh, changed governance across many issue areas. And each organization, the organization and conundrum to which entrepreneurs responded was different. I will just give a very quick uh, <coughs> example from Global Health, and then I will stop and uh, we will have, we can engage in free discussion. So again, with Global Health Partnerships, there is now a lot of fascination with Bill Gates and how Bill Gates is global health. 
But the reality is, if you look at the history of those partnerships, this was again a deliberate strategy, in this case of Gro Harlem Brundtland, to revive the WHO. Uh, when Gro Harlem Brundtland became head of WHO in the late 1990s, the WHO was in an existential crisis. It was underfunded. Other organizations, such as the World Bank, UNICEF, and other development agencies uh, were getting uh, important parts of their turf, and it had a legitimacy crisis. Even journals such as The Lancet and others, like Medical Journal, were writing about this legitimacy crisis. So, uh, uh, so it was really, uh, uh, Brooklyn faced a situation where she needed to revive the organization. At the same time, there was an enormous advocacy pressures on the pandemics that were being not addressed and that were causing huge uh, human suffering uh, to the detriment of human rights, as with the HIV-AIDS pandemic, malaria, TB, and many, many other neglect, so-called neglected diseases. So again, when you read the primary material, uh, she took this as a very strategic way of advancing the position of WHO. She argued that by collaborating with other UN organizations, with which they in constant turf battles, and with the private sector, and with NGOs, and with the epistemic community. She was supported by a very strong epistemic community in this venture, including many people working on health here at Harvard. Um, the, the WHO would regain its centrality in a globalized system of governance. And Brundtland, like Kofinan, was very skilled in that because she has already reframed environmental sustainable development a decade back. Now she was... Uh, reframing global health as a development issue, not only a medical issue, um, and uh, as a collaborative issue, not only a WHO issue. And we see it, it's well known, uh, the rise of public-private partnerships have really transformed important parts of how the WHO <coughs> works. But what this is a little bit to uh, illustrate uh, some of the insights that uh, systematic data can produce. Uh, this figure uh, puts together two points of data. One is what kind of actor leads global health partnerships as part of the WHO portfolio. There are about 80 uh, of those that we counted. And we see that uh, WHO and other organizations have always been among the lead actors of those partnerships, but also governments, NGOs, and also foundations, research PPPs, less so business, and that is very clear why. There is a huge conflict of interest if WHO is seen in direct collaboration with business, so partnerships was a way to try to benefit from that technology over which business had almost exclusive control at the time, and at the same time not engage directly with business companies. But public actors are as important entrepreneurs of this ventures as are Bill Gates and the foundations. Um, and it also shows what kind of governance instruments these partnerships tend to prioritize. And as we can see information which covers everything from in innovative technology to knowledge about how to apply this technology. So a lot about those partnerships was make access to, te to technology. A lot of these partnerships about, were about advocacy, which is not traditionally what the WHO does directly. So partnerships could do that for the WHO. A lot of them are about capacity. 
uh, have to some extent monitoring um, and finance, but very little uh, regulation and very little uh, normative, uh, norm-making authority. This is clearly a sphere of governance that WHO member states guard quite zealously. Uh, and so as part of the contestation, of that. Oh, I lost my voice. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> Clearly it's time to finish. talk about the WHO later on. <laughs> but the point is that um, what our database reveals is that this kind of dynamic change has really transformed governance across many issue areas. And we have data on all of those issue areas. Um, and um, some uh, of the change has been rather dramatic. Uh, and so my uh, conclusion, if I could speak it, would be that um, uh, while we found through the systematic data, and I couldn't talk about the WHO graphs, which clearly show that public-private partnerships depend critically on sovereign finance as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> Hot water works better. So uh, public-private partnerships say, depend critically on governance entrepreneurs, they depend critically on public finance, private actors go in to leverage their influence, to reduce risks. Public actors engage with private actors when they want to make it, when they, they're seeking change. They're seeking to leverage their resources in a way that is risky, that is experimental, uh, but could produce change. Not all partnerships are successful because they are entrepreneurial ventures. Some are not successful. They're not always seen as legitimate. And so this is an ongoing discourse for the WHO. It was particularly interesting to watch uh, because they engaged in long process of figuring out and finally writing on paper what is the sphere where the organizations really keeps a monopoly on, on authority to the extent that possible in terms of regulation, normative work, and what are the rules of engagement with different types of non-state actors. So that this organization has the most elaborate framework. All other organizations have those frameworks. Sometimes this entrepreneurship has happened from the top down, <coughs> largely like uh, WHO or has been kind of legitimate from the top down or with the case of Kofi Annan. Often, in the case of UNICEF or UNEP, it has been happening out of departments, bottom up. So Kennedy School graduate, for example, Mark Ratka, single-handedly started the clean energy department of UNEP. And he worked with other partnerships and with the Ted Turner partnership at the UN Secretariat to make clean energy governance a, a governance field. So if Ratka is one of your entrepreneurs, you have like 10 or 15 like those like him that put clean energy governance on the intergovernmental agenda, and when 
member states like large players such as the US, the UK, Germany, finally kind of their preferences converged around DAO's idea, already there was a lot of institutional capital to kind of legalize and institutionalize. Um, so hybridization government, uh, governance is um, a way that multilateral system is currently. You have public and private authority interplaying in various forms, not always, but in many issue areas. And um, I have this picture of a tree here, uh, not only because I work on environmental issues, but also the alternative is a shopping mall to illustrate that if we imagined in the 1950s and even in the 1980s, the UN like a department store to which governments delegate functions and you go in specialized departments to get your policy recommendation. Now governments have to deal with the branches of the tree, not with the trunk, or the multiple different boutiques and shops uh, that are either purely public or hybrid or entirely private to figure out what is the best governance solutions to the complex governance conundrums that we have around the world. And with this, I would leave the floor for questions. And I'm sorry for the break. <laughs> So you would wonder if half this talk was about John Ruggie, uh, where's John Ruggie? Um, uh, John was indeed due to be here, but uh, got asked uh, two days ago uh, to uh, represent himself and the school and so on at the formal state funeral for Kofi Annan. Uh, so uh, John uh, met with Liliana last night, uh, and uh, John is on an airplane on his way to Africa right now. Uh, otherwise, he would have been here. Uh, the second for Liliana recovers her voice. I think really as part of context for public-private partnerships uh, here at Harvard and the Kennedy School, um, let me just ask uh, Amanda, sorry, Thomas, to say uh, uh, a short couple of words about the uh, Roy Awards um, and, and how they are functioning in this space. Of course, uh, uh, Liliana has been an advisor to the program, but but say something just so those of you who are interested in this know there is some continuity even when Liliana escapes. Sure, so the Environment and Natural Resources Program at the Belfer Center um, presents an award every two years to an environmental public-private partnership and we've been doing this since 2003. And um, so, but every, every year we do, we do a, every two years do sort of a landscape assessment of who are the kinds of actors that are engaging in these kinds of partnerships and what are they working on and who are their partners and what are their goals. And we put out calls for nominations and we get lots of really interesting partnerships in and then we narrow down the finalists and make a determination. Um, and since we've been doing this since 2003, we now have this really interesting, robust data set of partnerships going back during this, this, this time. And now we're thinking more about, well, what can, we, what can we do with it? And so we're working on a collaborative project with Liliana and others about how do you sort of measure the effectiveness of these kinds of partnerships? Um, and it will be interesting to see, you sort of touched on this a little bit at the beginning, that through the UN system and the Sustainable Development Goals, we have all of these, all of these actors coming together and making these pledges to partner, to do something. And many of these will not succeed. Many of them will just dissolve <coughs> sometime in the future. 
And what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what are the what are the sort of what are the criteria for success? What are there things that you can do when you're putting these things together that will make it more likely to succeed? Thank you, um, Liliana. Any comment on that, or shall I just open things up? I, I think it's good to open, mm -hmm. okay. but uh, this is a, this has been a great award, and uh, also it's wonderful that it's part of the Kennedy School because now it allows us to learn. This is in fact the first database because it is managed by the Kennedy School where you would find both successes and failures and you can actually meaningfully study what makes a, what makes a partnership more successful and what exactly is the contribution to the sustainability. So I think this is, yeah, fantastic. The next, this is the sequel. Oh, this is the next book that we will be presenting. <laughs> okay, then uh, open up the, the floor. Uh, we'll do it. Uh, questions are questions rather than speeches. They end with question marks and Zoom. Uh, say who you are. Uh, if you have a really short follow-up question to the one that's just been on the floor, put up two fingers, and maybe I will recognize you at least the first time. Um, okay, uh, first question. Um, I'm uh, Kat Thompson, I'm studying at the Kennedy Schools, um, and uh, I've worked on PPPs out of uh, the U.S. government and with the U.N. on the Sustainable Development Goal number 17, mm -hmm. so for partnerships, and, uh, and data collection. And so I'm just curious, when you had your chart up of where the uh, private sector typically goes and the history there, how much of it has been kind of a demonstration of corporate social responsibility, mm -hmm. um, and how has that evolved over the years? Uh, and where do you see kind of data? Co my th my theory would be that the data collection and the emphasis on how much data you can gather has actually propelled it into a more strategic space for corporations. Whereas before, it was more um, CSR. Okay, um, great questions. Um, uh, it depends on what uh, partnership platform you're looking at. I would say uh, things such as the Global Compact are more CSR. It's, it's more about reputation, it's more about learning. Uh, and that model is a model that is not universally admired. Uh, as, uh, for, for many people it was a stepping stone to learning and doing things even further. Uh, with the uh, issue-specific partnerships such as um, health, such as uh, children, uh, it has gone towards the strategic direction. Um, uh, and uh, it, it is always motivated in part by CSR, but when I have talked with people that facilitate those partnerships at the level of the UN, uh, they, uh, it's very clear to them that for some issues they would get business interest and for other issues they would not get the business interest. So business entities are still more interested in the models where you see measurable results, uh, where their contributions would be leveraged by other contribution, including from other members of the private sector. And so in terms of people who are concerned about global governance more broadly, uh, one has to be aware that um, not all issue areas or not even all <coughs> aspects of the same issue area would be equally amenable to public-private partnership with a strong presence of business. And so uh, other issue areas just have to remain high on the agenda for other kind of 
for largely public action, or for NGO public action. So it, it, there is an important variation pre precisely because of this strategic targeting of issues and leveraging of risks. When I do, did some interviews with business, they say, well, partnerships are useful in terms of governance because they allow to distribute risks only when they distribute risk according to the uh, comparative advantage of the different partners. And that to them was a hypothesis as to when it's likely to be successful or not. Okay, immediate follow-ups on that question? Okay, and you're next. Um, so my name is Amit Esmerba, I teach innovation at MIT. Um, my question is, is there a value in looking at similar developments elsewhere? So for example, this week is uh, FinTech Innovation Week in Boston. And the, the, the opening uh, session argued that innovation happens where you have the incumbents, such as the car companies, interacting with big internet, Facebook, uh, et cetera, Google, <coughs> and startup companies together. Mm -hmm. So, and in general, we have had a development maybe in the same period of time from companies like Bell Labs, you know, doing all the innovation in-house, outsourcing it into open innovation where we now have tremendous interest in looking for constantly shifting um, uh, partnerships. Is there a value in looking at this? Is it, is it similar enough for, to, to have a heuristic um, uh, value? And in terms also of yours, I mean, there are people that like the venture capitalists are trying to make you know a checklist for what makes success in that world is that a value you know. uh, well I do think there is a broader value in this framework um, in this and, and, and bill certainly led a, a project on innovation for a number of years uh, where we try to look at how different systems interact uh, that may enable or Pre prevent innovation. Now, the heuristic that this model um, presents that could travel is this idea of um, leveraging different types of capabilities and different comparative advantages uh, while understanding that you're taking a risk and you might not succeed in that innovation, but without taking a risk, then innovation is not going to happen. But the idea that is through this uh, incremental change and learning, you actually could get substantial innovation. So to look at innovation not as an immediate and substantial departure from the status quo, but as also that could happen. But you could also have a process whereby through l leveraging of risks, and leveraging <coughs> resources and knowledge and possibility from cyclical learning by doing, you also get to that innovation. I mean, learning by doing has been largely described, but this, the, the idea of experimentation, diffusion, and institutionalization, I, I would think is part of that same dynamic that you can have in technological innovation. And only now, I think we have more possibilities for that because of this leveraging that you were talking about and uh, the, the ease of interaction uh, that we currently have compared to 50 years ago. So I don't know whether this uh, replies to your question, but uh, uh, I, I think it does open venues of thinking about innovation 
uh, that would be otherwise preempted by immediate risks or lack of capabilities or uh, knowledge sitting in different boxes. And now we have more recognition that we could experiment with combinations and um, even if, yeah. yeah there certainly has been a tradition here in the innovation work of uh, uh, maybe a cartoon version of what you're asking for, but looking at the fate and success failure of efforts to pair up national laboratories, so essentially mm -hmm. official government sponsors of, of use-intended research with private corporations. And uh, Gabe Chan graduated from there a couple of years back, doing some really interesting work on precisely trying to see whether the partnership version of doing this, as opposed to the arm's length versions, um, were more effective or not. My mm -hmm. suspicion is that that, as you say, in this innovation project certainly is a valuable line and sometimes these partnerships open niches for technological innovation because partners realize, gee, if we have this technology that solves these particular problems, that would improve the partnership. And so that then uh, um, feeds back into actors with technology knowledge and stimulates the next step, like targeted innovation type of... I've seen that in clean energy a little bit, in health a little bit. Um, Alicia Harley, uh, Sustainability Science Program. Um, I was really interested in your graph, the last graph you showed of uh, sort of what kinds of partnerships were being developed, and especially that there were so few around regulation and normative mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. And sort of just thinking about the issue from the perspective, sort of a very realistic perspective of the private sector and their incentives for participation, and my own sort of interest in the food system, in sort of global dialogues around the food system, the private sector is very much interested in making sort of non-normative contributions. Frontera, a dairy company, the other day in sort of a global dialogue, making the argument that obesity is caused by a lack of milk consumption, um, things like that. So I'm just wondering how kind of your entrepreneurs are dealing with this issue of power in different examples um, in protecting this normative space. Is the lack of sort of partnerships around normativity because the IOs are protecting that or because the private sector is not getting involved? Both. Um, so private sector, if uh, they are looking for some sort of return on, on their engagement in partnerships. And getting into politics, i.e. regulation, typically doesn't promise. It promises more trouble than return. Um, they like to influence regulation in the traditional way, uh, through the back door, through lobbying. So, I mean, when, when we talk about partnership, we have to keep in mind that every uh, societal entity has multiple strategies to influence governance. And partnership is a, a direct strategy, but they involve costs. They don't involve only opportunities. Um, for, uh, however, for the private uh, sector as also NGOs, what is important is to have a stable, the more stable the regulatory for framework, the better. For them as entities and for the partnerships. Um, so indirectly, uh, there is an attempt to influence regulation. So there is clear expectations about influence on uh, of regulation. So on the public side, it varies across organizations. Some organizations more sensitive about it, 
some organizations are less sensitive about it. The World Bank doesn't do much organizations. It, uh, it's a development organization, doesn't do much regulation. In fact, when it engaged in, in climate finance on purely kind of funding principle and climate and development principle, it got actually critiqued heavily about getting on the turf of w, UNFCCC, which is the regulatory body on climate, uh, while uh, the bank was doing climate without any specific regulatory mandate. For UNICEF and WHO, by other chance, their normative mandate is so important for who they are, for their legitimacy, for the organization, that they have taken all sorts of precautions uh, as to uh, to stay as far as possible from any uh, regulatory mix-up between private, between partnerships, not even between the private sector and uh, and their regulatory work. And still, there are concerns <laughs> that by putting a lot of money and advancing a particular model of government governance out of big partnerships, they're setting the agenda. Hence, they're influencing regulations indirectly. And that's why things went to, to the World Health Assembly, and the World Health Assembly at least formally had to establish uh, which spheres of governance have to be absolutely and to the extent possible insulated, not only of private sector, but of partnerships as well. Okay, direct follow-ups on this question? Direct on this one. It's a direct on a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, oh, I'm, I'm not going to take away from that. Oh, go ahead, Scott. <laughs> I'll get to it. I'll get it. I'm Scott Ranson. I'm a new senior fellow here in the center of government. Uh, Leon, I appreciated your, your historical piece that took us through Copia Non. And let me say that I, um, on the innovation front, I co chaired an innovation working group for Baki Moon, Secretary General of Women and Children's Health. For a number of years, and we did not use the word partnership. So my question is going to be around that. I'll give just two anecdotes, which I think tell a story. One in Gaston, one in Geneva, when big CEOs, well, CEOs of big companies came over to talk about big, important social issues. And on one occasion, he said, "And I'd like to, you know, toast to the partnership and toast to my colleagues and people from the NGO and government world." So no, no, you're not partnering. You're not colleagues. This is a project. This is an initiative. This is uh, another time, uh, an economist sponsored event, another big social health issue. WHO came in and spoke when the CEO was ready to speak. He said, no, nope, we can't be in the same room as yeah. the CEO of a big pharmaceutical company because of this perception. So my question comes down to the words uh, that I've used strategically for a study group tomorrow, multi-sectoral action. I have heard that there is a reticence to continue to focus on this word partnership or public-private partnership. So what is your perspective as you're seeing where the, the world is going on both the use of the word, the opportunity to foster these in, in uh, areas of big uh, social impact, and even you've made the point of saying some pieces are only for public actors, the private sector, the government should not get involved. Uh, is there a, a distinction that you're making in, in that regard? And that's a that's a very interesting question and comment. Um, it kind of proves the comment, uh, the the point that this kind of collaboration uh, would remain contested, even though it's quite broadly institutionalized. Um, that would not prevent people from from trying to use every possible instruments to advance certain issues. 
So I think there would be still multi-stakeholder action of, of public-private partnership action. It's interesting that public-private partnership is institutionalized in the SDGs uh, and, and it's still uh, resisted. Um, uh, so um, I think the, 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 the two trends that are likely to happen, they w we, we wouldn't see such a peak in PPPs as in mid-2000s, late-2000s, because of institutions kind of taper off. So only the most successful model are likely to consolidate, and new ones are likely to come up as well, but more strategically. Uh, before it was sometimes all you could start a partnership. Now partners, uh, organizations have more knowledge about this kind of initiatives. On the other hand, given that these are still very vulnerable initiatives in terms of public visibility and criticism, uh, they're going to be maybe structured more carefully and different language is going to be used. But I think as a model of governance, it's here to stay. Even the Every Woman, Every Child initiative, I heard, I gave a talk at the UN. <coughs> uh, to me, that was one of the surprises during my research. I first looked at the partnerships on maternal, childhood, and infant and childhood health. And as a political scientist, I thought, surely this is a big uh, talk shop doing nothing. To my surprise, it, when I started doing the interviews, it was a hugely meaningful partnerships, starting from countries where issues of preventable infant uh, and newborn death were actually not being addressed largely because they are nobody's political agenda. So with huge development repercussions, with huge rights repercussions, with huge human suffering repercussions. So this was a very different type of initiatives of the Kofi Annan or RAG initiatives. It was a mobilization of pediatric associations. WHO was at the center. Experts were at the center. Uh, midwives associations, NGOs, to make these first and foremost politically salient issues and to get governments to commit, even in a soft way. So it was a partnerships of 10 partnerships. So that's why I thought it was a walk. And because uh, Ban Ki-moon adopted it, he pushed it to the level of the General Assembly. And you have a framework and you have a fund on this one. And despite what I would consider a very successful political actions to move on a no-brainer issue, governance forward, this initiative, people within the UN told me quietly two days ago that this initiative was resented because it was institutionalized as a multi-stakeholder initiative. You had all these uh, actors on the table. So this is not a done deal. It's an evolution of a system, uh, but it is likely to be part of how we govern. I'm, 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 I'm convinced because it's not possible to deal with all problems with a single-shot intergovernmental convention um, and then not think about uh, who, who is actually going to implement the convention and why is there no convention about an infant dying every second. There was a website, infant dying every second from something that's completely preventable. Um, <laughs> I am willing to call on people not in the front row. But, uh, <laughs> all the rest of you back there. If you uh, want, I can combine. We can combine <laughs> questions okay. to uh, really short follow-up. Just the term PPP. I thought it was a project finance term. Yeah. 
it used to be also a delegation of public service term. It, the, 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 the term has its problems. But uh, might be a good idea to go to the what was it multi sector yeah. but it's yes. difficult to even pronounce. Global partnerships. And, um, and, and very differently from a lot of my colleagues, I've actually sat in marketing, but with a public health background and a PhD in public health. And I have found that um, the most successful partnership that we have led have actually been partnerships that have been initiated by business and mm -hmm. by the brands. Um, when the, the business and the brands make it a core to their business model, so they are willing to self-sustain and self-fund it. Um, and I have found that um, um, more and more lately, there are direct relationships that are forming between brands and governments to be able to do, for example, large-scale national hygiene programs integrating into the curriculum. And with a direct uh, um, opposition and conflicts coming from some of the UN agencies that have mm. not recommended this kind of direct relationship because this was always a gateway <laughs> to be able to get the corporate to invest so much money in them to be able to then open a door to some, some government somewhere. Um, and, um, and, I, and you know, my question right now is, is, is more around when you go back to governance, how needed and do you need these extra layers of partnerships team that are supposed to, um, how should I put it, translate vocabularies because business people don't understand and then uh, um, government and national institutions are going to be taken advantage by the government. And, and in reality, I, I, I have seen very little PPPs that have worked um, it, when it's not putting the two together much more centrally for them mm -hmm. to come up with a model that works. So I, I feel like the UN needs to almost rethink what their role is going to be and not look at it as a way to make money, but rather as a way to be able to regulate and, and support this, um, this nurturing environment. That's about making money first because that's what sustainability comes from. Uh, just a, it's part of my research this year as well, but I, it's made my life extremely difficult over the last 15 years. I have been outcasted <laughs> by almost every UN agency, wow. and as being a UN child myself, I can tell you that that's been very difficult because my my last name is obviously a gateway to entering almost any doors I, I, I can or I want to. So I'm, I'm really finding this extremely difficult, and I'd love to get your perspective on how do you recreate within corporation and even within government, stopping that layer that actually for me stops success? That's a great question. I, I don't know. I mean, and the companies have different business models. So clearly Unilever is much more proactive on social and environmental issues compared to many other companies. The companies that I have read about or interviewed um, I have independent, uh, even independent of this project, uh, have uh, gone the UN route uh, because they felt that they need an intermediary between messy domestic politics uh, and uh, a CSR strategy. Um, so, and if, if you personally don't, for example, then the UN is likely to be guarding their turf or thinking in terms of, of 
fragmentation of governance, undue influence. The, the UN agencies can justify in many ways why they would uh, be skeptical of a direct relationship between the government and, uh, and business. Um, so that, that is my explanation as, as to why they are reticent. They could be keeping their turf and they could be also be concerned about direct influence of the company on the government, although it's not really the UN's business, uh, other than the fact that if it is in the area of health, it involves all sorts of like public regulations and that are partly governed at the international level. But I don't know what is the specific case. Um, how can this be resolved on the part of the company? Um, I'm sure that your government partner has a strategy to do that. Or maybe with a different kind of intermediary or, or no intermediary at all. I, I haven't heard of this problem. I, I have heard about the opposite problem of companies wondering how to approach an issue that seems untractable and getting on with NGOs, not only UN though, NGOs are equally important. I just interviewed an electricity partner here in Galapagos. They thought of working with the mayor to install wind farm in a very ecologically sensitive area. And before they arrived, the Darwin Foundation was already campaigning against them. And so they were not sure that they should stay, but they worked with the Darwin Foundation to figure out whether they should stay or not. Um, so the case is that I know they needed some sort of a, uh, learning, and the, the, the good ones uh, engage in learning and engage in some risk management. And for that, they typically need intermediaries. And the intermediaries typically take the form of experts, UN organizations, or NGOs, or all of the above, but at least one of those quasi-neutral entities. So I'm not, I guess I'm not uh, giving you very good advice, because <laughs> I don't know how a company works directly with the, with the government. Uh, and, uh, but I'm sure, I mean, out of a number of case studies, you could draw some Interesting insights. I've got uh, two minutes and two people in the queue, so um, take that as a guidance. Yeah, we're uh, I'm James Skull, a uh, visiting scholar at Harvard. Uh, at the very beginning, you mentioned that for those uh, triple P's, 10% <laughs> survived and the other 90% failed. I'm more curious about the reason why those 10% survived and the others failed. 10% mm -hmm. of those ones that were uh, very, very ad hoc, of the ones that I collected here, my guess would be that at least 75% of, the, of them survived. Um, and, and so the difference would be the success through which they uh, get implemented. Uh, the extent to which partners go into with credible commitments and mutual understanding of those commitments and resources, and rather than just announce the partnerships, then you would work out the details later. So with the WSSD, as I said, it was opportunistic. There was this, so a lot of things were announced, but without backing. Uh, with Nowadays, this is not possible to do anymore because it's clear that you have a lot of transaction costs in creating a partnerships. Uh, and so uh, some of that transaction cost has to go in kind of building certain expectations as to how far it can go. 
Um, and so it's the institutional <coughs> structure and commitment, I think, would make the difference. Last word. So you've given a you know, pretty sophisticated description of a change model within the United Nations, as an example, right? And you've talked about the importance of entrepreneurs within that. Mm -hmm. On the business side, you know, I think you talk a little bit, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but you talk a little bit about business as a, a uniform response, if you will. Mm -hmm. But if you go across the river, they're going to have, oh, the government will respond in a somewhat simplistic way, and they'll have a very sophisticated change model for how change occurs within a business. And just from my own experience, uh, being inside a corporation, mm -hmm. the change process within a corporation is massively complicated and massively political. And I'm wondering if you've thought about possible PPPs where you're finding entrepreneurs from within, say, a United Nations type organization and entrepreneurs from within a corporation and that you can leverage opportunity across the two, share risk across the two, or shift risk the one that can bear it and take the lead on it versus the other one. So it's a, it's a complicated dynamic between a private institution, a company, and a governmental institution like the United Nations, and how those play together. Because I can guarantee you, it is a very complicated process within a corporation to drive change. Mm -hmm. um, so you may either respond to that or have your last word, and then we will stop. I, I'll respond to that uh, as a last word. And that's why in this new project that we have started together with Amanda and Henry and others, I also have business school people. Uh, because, because of this messy landscape, I was thinking for a while, how can I make sense of this new form of governance? So I first focus on what I know best, international institutions and how they change. Now, it's interesting to me to see how this model and to what extent it travels at all to, to the private sector and to see... Um, uh, what drives motivation for, for change and or for partnership on the private sector side. Uh, and uh, uh, these strategic partnerships, which were mentioned several times, in fact, are quite rare in my database. Uh, and they and the business school has even case studies about some of them, the IKEA UNICEF, the Eli Lilly TB. Uh, that's where you had a specific business interest driving together uh, 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 with uh, a public actor that was quite a good fit. I know a few of them, but not many of them. So it's a good question to say that a lot more research is there to be done. Yeah. I think the book contributes, uh, <laughs> contributes to understanding how public and private actors interact in these complex and not always predictable ways, but it has become part of the model of governance, and it can be improved, it could be pushed forward, it could be criti critiqued. I, I think critique is also good, because this is how you keep accountable something that is not intrinsically accountable. Right. Uh, and, and hence, studying them in other areas, such as NGOs, they must be compromising certain things and gaining certain things. The business sector is the, the way to go, I think, in the next steps. So thank you very much for this discussion. Thank you.